This is a Brain Channel program. Visit us at uctv.tv brain to explore cutting-edge research, treatment options for conditions related to the nervous system, and the inner workings of the human mind. Thank you so much for coming to the Shiley Endowed Lecture. So David Holtzman has been a longtime friend of our center, a great advisor and mentor to me. Uh, he is the chair of neurology at WashU uh, at this point, and he is a uh, um, associate director of WashU's very uh, outstanding Alzheimer's disease research center. And so we're really delighted to have such a fantastic representative of the idea of the Shiley Endowed Lecture Series. So let's welcome Dave Holtzman. What I'm going to talk about today is, is something that uh, I never would have thought uh, would have emerged as one of the important roles, potentially important roles for APOE in the nervous system, in particular in disease. And it has to do with its potential effects on the innate immune system in the brain. So uh, as I get started, um, I'll give some introduction. I know a lot of people here know a lot about Alzheimer's disease, but I'll at least set the stage for the rest of the work uh, after that. See if this moves. Oops, seems stuck. There we go. So I have to provide uh, disclosures. Um, I think for what I'm going to talk about today, um, none of these COIs are directly relevant to the APOE story, but here, here are d different COIs. So um, as many of you know, dementia is a decline in memory and other uh, 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 problems with uh, thinking that impairs your social and occupational functioning. Obviously, it's one of our major public health problems because it is so common. So the prevalence of this is only about 2% or so at age 70, but by the age of 85 and older, it approaches 50%. And, uh, of course, there's many different things that contribute to dementia that can contribute to it. Alzheimer's disease probably contributes to about 70% or so of cases in the United States. Um, one of the things uh, that has been emerging in recent years, um, more so, even though we kind of knew about this before, is that in late-onset Alzheimer's disease, um, you know, it's, it's pretty rare to find somebody who dies over the age of 75 or 80 who has dementia, the Alzheimer type, that not only has Alzheimer's pathology, but also has other pathologies. This is something important to think about, especially in, the, in people that develop the disease when they're older. having trouble with advancing this thing. Okay, so the, the clinical features of dementia due to Alzheimer's disease are that usually there's a very gradual, almost imperceptible onset of decline, in most cases in episodic or recent memory as the first manifestation that we can see clinically, although in almost all cases there's executive dysfunction at about the same time. Now, uh, there's different presentations of disease. Not everybody presents like that, but in the most common presentation, that's what happens. And then as the disease progresses, there's often problem-solving difficulties, language dysfunction, behavioral dysfunction, um, and sleep disruption. So the course of disease is variable, but usually from onset to death on average is about 8 to 12 years. Um, being at a place where uh, they came up with the clinical dementia rating scale, I... I like to think of the disease in simple terms, the clinical phase at least of 
classify patients as very mild, mild, moderately, or severely abnormal. And then based on the symptoms and signs of the disease, usually with an informant-based method with testing, you can be right most of the time if somebody has uh, the presentation of dementia that's of the Alzheimer type, that it actually is Alzheimer's disease. But no matter how good you are, you're not going to be right all the time. Um, and certainly the biomarkers, uh, uh, having been instituted, in, at least in the research setting into this disease, have taught us that no matter how good you are early on, you're, you're going to be right not all the time. So um, the classic neuropathology of disease described over 100 years ago is the uh, accumulation of two major proteins in the brain, amyloid beta and the extracellular space shown in these plaques, and the accumulation of hyperphosphorylated aggregated tau, both in neurites as well as in cell bodies. And of course, um, if that was the only thing present in the brain that was abnormal, you probably wouldn't become demented. But in the areas of the brain uh, that show dysfunction in patients, there is also significant uh, neuronal loss, synaptic loss, brain atrophy. And there's a pretty striking inflammatory response in the brain. So this is just a schematic view of this showing the amyloid beta peptide, normally a monomer that aggregates in these extracellular plaques, the intracellular um, abnormally hyperphosphorylated aggregated tau protein, and then this strong uh, microglial and astrocytic response that occurs around the different lesions, including the plaques and the tangles. So um, what I will talk a lot more about today is the potential role of this innate immune response in the disease. It certainly was the case when I was first learning about this disease that people knew about this. Actually, Alzheimer described microgliosis back in the early 1900s, but I think most people thought that these things were just secondary to the pathology, that that's why this was happening. And that may be true, but it certainly looks like that this uh, reaction is also playing a role in the disease progression. So this is sort of a modified version of the amyloid cascade hypothesis, which um, argues that while initially one, this would have argued that the aggregation of the A-beta peptide into different forms is sufficient to cause the disease, we, I think it's very clear that that may, may be an important trigger, but it's certainly not the whole story. And one of the things, uh, obviously, is the, uh, the aggregation of tau and spread into different parts of the brain that correlates much better with uh, the dysfunction that we see in patients. But importantly, both of these pathologies are strongly linked with the inflammatory response, and there may be some sort of a, uh, interaction where inflammation is directly affecting not only how these uh, protein aggregates damage the brain, but also how A-beta seems to drive tauopathy. <clears throat> so in terms of... Um, the field of Alzheimer's disease in general, it really was opened up by different genetic studies that began to emerge and findings in, uh, beginning in around 19, late 1980s. Um, and we know, of course, that there's autosomal dominant mutations in one of three genes, PS1, PS2, and APP, that cause you know, rare form of early onset Alzheimer's disease dementia. But in terms of the genes that affect risk for disease, um, there's many, many now that have been described that affect risk, but by far the elephant in the room is APOE genotype. And of all of the common diseases that occur in man, whether it's cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, um, in general, or, or, or Alzheimer's disease, APOE is probably the strongest genetic risk factor for any of the common diseases that we, we see. 
Um, and it's, it's a rarity in that it's a relatively common uh, allele APOE4. It's in about 25% of Caucasian populations. People have at least one copy. Um, and yet it has a very strong effect. So um, it is the most important genetic risk factor for late onset AD and accounts for about, which accounts of course for about 99% of people that we see in our clinics. Um, has, it's also a strong risk factor for amyloid angiopathy. And it appears to affect outcome after head trauma. And whether it plays a role in other neurological diseases is not as conclusive, although there's increasing evidence that it has an effect on synucleinopathy and tauopathy. We'll talk more about that as we go along. So the odds ratio for having one copy of E4 versus two copies of E3 is about 3.68. And if you are unfortunate enough to have two copies of E4, your risk for AD is about 12 to 15-fold higher than somebody who's E3-3. And the other thing that's important to know is that the E2 allele, while it's not so uh, common, it's strongly protective against Alzheimer's disease. You have about 50% less risk of getting the disease if you have an E2 allele. So what is APOE? I remember when the first finding, genetic findings of APOE came out in 1993, and I was um, actually I was still in Bill's lab at that time, and I uh, gave a talk at Neurology Grand Rounds at, uh, then, uh, kind of going over what was known at that point about the neurobiology of APOE. Um, and actually, one of the places that Bill had trained, Eric Shooter's lab at Stanford, had actually discovered that APOE is expressed highly in the nervous system, especially after, in peripheral nervous system, especially after nerve injury. Um, but it's a 34 kilodalton, 299 amino acid glycoprotein, produced at highest levels in the liver, but also high levels in the brain. It's, in the brain, it's mostly produced by astrocytes, um, although activated microglia ramp up their expression quite a bit as well. Um, it's present in the brain only in, in HDL-like lipoproteins. There is no LDL or VLDL in the brain. Um, and it binds to actually not just the amyloid beta peptide in aggregates. It binds to any amyloid protein that forms in the extracellular space. Um, and there are three common isoforms in humans, E2, 3, and 4, that only differ by a single amino acid at position 112 or 158. So... I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the effects of APOE on amyloid deposition, but I still think that the major reason APOE is linked with risk for Alzheimer's disease is because it strongly affects the aggregation of the amyloid peptide in the brain in an isoform-specific fashion. So I will go through that a little bit more before I get to the main part of the story I'll tell you about today. So in the sort of very um, high-level biomarker schemes or of the pathology of Alzheimer's disease, I, you know, I think it's pretty clear that amyloid deposition, a beta deposition in the neocortex, starts anywhere from 15 to 20 years before the emergence of symptoms in people that develop this disease. That's true both in dominantly inherited Alzheimer's disease and in late-onset AD. And then sometime before symptoms start, you start to get um, spread of the aggregated forms of the tau protein out of the medial temporal lobe into the neocortex. So one, one, if APOE does affect amyloid deposition as, as how it acts as a risk factor, what one would expect is that you would shift this curve in different, uh, by different APOE alleles. So the hypothesis would be that if this is somebody who's E33, on average, that E4 
alleles would drive this deposition to occur earlier and that the E2 allele would drive this deposition later. And if that's true, what you'd expect if you studied people who are cognitively normal before they develop dementia of the Alzheimer type, you would predict that at any given age, let's say, I'll show you a study in a moment where we looked at people 50 to 70 years old that were cognitively normal who had amyloid deposition or not based on PET scans and CSF criteria. And so you would predict in that population that you would see this. In other words, most people are more people that are ApoE4 would already have amyloid deposition in this preclinical AD window and less with E2. And that's exactly what we found in this relatively large study of over, it was about over 200 people that were volunteers at our Alzheimer's Disease Research Center that were cognitively normal ages 50 to 70. And if you look on the left panel, this shows the percentage of people that were E44, E34, E33, or E23 that had evidence of amyloid deposition in this age range. So you can see over 60% of the people that were E44 already had amyloid deposition while they were normal in this age range, whereas if you're E2 positive, almost nobody had amyloid deposition. And this has been seen now in many, many studies. So I, th I think that's probably the reason APOE is likely to be a risk factor. Now, that doesn't say that's all it's doing in the, in the nervous system but, uh, for disease. Um, and you can see the same sort of phenomenon if you use animal models that develop amyloid deposition. In this case, we, look, we use PDAPP mice that deposit a beta in their brain um, and then looked at them at different ages. And you can see if we cross these mice to APO, human APOE knock-in mice, that the mice at any given age with E4 have a lot more amyloid deposition than three, than, than two, and this is pretty much what, exactly what you see in humans with late onset, uh, well, just humans that have different APOE alleles. So um, one of the things I, I'm not gonna go into today is that I think the mechanism for how APOE is doing this has to do with two things. One is that it, influenced the clearance, it influences the clearance in an isoform-dependent fashion of the soluble A-beta monomer, but it also affects the seeding capability of the A-beta peptide, makes it more likely to aggregate and seed as a direct effect. So in regard to these effects, at least these effects on amyloid deposition, if you wanted to develop a treatment to see if APOE modulation would influence this process, do you want to increase or decrease APOE levels? And so uh, from a genetic standpoint, we did this experiment a few years ago where this was carried out by Jung Soo Kim, then a postdoc in my lab. He took APPPS1 mice that develop amyloid deposition and simply crossed them to APOE knock-in mice that had two copies or one copy of APOE. And you can see this very strong effect. So the E4 mice have more amyloid deposition but if you only had one copy of E3 or E4, there's less than half as much amyloid deposition at this age. So very clear effect. Now, that's where APOE was absent the entire life, or not absent, either present at two copies or one copy from, you know, from the birth of the animal. So what, about, um, what if you actually took animals after they already were um, alive, and then you started to knock down APOE levels, what kind of effects would you get? And these are studies carried out by Fat Huen, an MD-PhD student in my lab, where in a collaboration with Ionis Pharmaceuticals, where we, uh, they, they actually developed some nice ASOs that knock down APOE. And this is just showing that um, 
if we inject these ASOs starting at birth or later, we can knock down the level of APOE protein about 50-60% in this paradigm. So we basically then uh, took these APP PS1 mice that express APOE3 or APOE4, and we knocked down APOE starting either just after birth with a single injection, or we knocked it down at about six to eight weeks of age, right when the animals are starting to already have some amyloid deposition. So when we knock the APOE levels down early from right after birth, you can see that um, we decrease amyloid deposition by about 50%. And this is a very similar result um, to uh, work that Guojun Bu has published in the same issue of Neuron, where they did the opposite experiment. When they overexpress APOE starting at birth, they increase amyloid deposition. But uh, one of the things that was really interesting from this, we also looked at, well, deposition of amyloid doesn't cause in these mouse brains a whole lot of uh, neurodegeneration, let's say. You do, you do see damage to neurites that are around plaques called dystrophic neurites. And when we knocked down APOE, even on an individual plaque basis, there was less dystrophic neurites when we knocked down APOE. And that suggested that maybe there's an effect of APOE on something other than just the amyloid per se. Maybe it was affecting the damage response in some way. And so uh, this was highlighted in the next part of the study where we, we didn't start knocking down APOE till six to eight weeks of age and then looked a few months later. And we were able to knock down APOE about, still about 50, 60%, but we saw no effect on amyloid deposition when we did that. And so what that suggests is that APOE is involved in the seeding phase of the problem, but once A-beta aggregates or seeds in the brain, then APOE doesn't influence the, the accumulation much after that. And again, Guojun Bu's experiments done the opposite way, where they increased APOE expression once there was already amyloid deposition, also had no effect. But the one thing, again, that we saw is if you look around the amyloid plaques in the presence of an APOE knockdown, there was a lot less dystrophic neurites. So again, suggesting even though we weren't able to affect the plaque per se, there was something about the damage response that might be different. And that sort of led us to think about this in a little bit different way. So um, if this is, again, the sort of diagram of the gross changes in the brain that occur in their time course in relation to the clinical onset of disease right here, so amyloid starts building up in the neocortex, and before symptoms start, you get tau building up in parts of the neocortex. What about, uh, where, is it possible that APOE through some sort of an innate immune response might affect different phases of this disease? And there's, as you probably all are aware, in the last several years, there's been risk fact, uh, mutations, coding uh, sequence mutations in TREM2 and CD33 that also affect risk for Alzheimer's disease. And those genes, unlike APOE, are only expressed in the brain in microglia. So APOE is made in microglia, but it's mostly made by astrocytes. But it just suggested that something about the innate immune response must be affecting risk. Now, if that's true, where is it acting to affect risk? Is it affecting um, uh, early phase or later phases? So let's just briefly, I'll, I'll just show a little bit of data about TREM2. So TREM2 is a cell surface receptor expressed in the brain on microglia only, although it's expressed in myeloid cells in different organs. 
Um, and it, it appears to be able to bind a variety of different ligands to stimulate uh, intracellular signaling through SICK, PI3 kinase, MAP kinase. Um, <clears throat> and which of the ligands for TREM2 is most dominant, uh, I would say, is not entirely clear. And there are mutations that occur. Uh, the most common one that is linked with increased risk is the R47H mutation. And that mutation looks like it causes a relative loss of function of TREM2. So where is it that TREM2, as a, as a molecule expressed in microglia in the brain, acting in this sort of cascade of events that we sort of see as, as the Alzheimer's disease process? So one of the things we first did in 2013 when the TREM2 mutations were found that are linked to AD, um, right down the hall from my lab is Marco Colonna's lab, and he had cloned TREM2 15 years before that. And so we started to do some collaborations to try to better understand where TREM2 might be acting in the disease. So um, one of the first questions we asked is, does TREM2 influence amyloid deposition or the response to amyloid deposition? And um, this work was done by Jason Ulrich uh, at the time a postdoc in my lab. So basically, one of the first things we noticed is that we cr when we, we crossed APPPS1 mice that develop amyloid deposition, with TREM2 knockout mice, and we simply ask, what, is, what happens when there's only one allele of TREM2 instead of two alleles? And that pro we thought that probably would mimic what's occurring with the R47H mutation in TREM2, which causes a relative loss of function. And so the first thing we noticed is at least at the ages we first looked at, there was no gross change in the amount of A-beta that deposited. And other groups have published on this subsequently, but some groups find some, depending on the time, a slight increase, slight decrease, but it's, it, I would say the main effect is not grossly affecting how much amyloid deposition there is. But one of the first things we noticed that was just striking is that the response of microglia to the amyloid deposition was strongly reduced. So the microglia normally will cluster around amyloid plaques, and that clustering was mostly um, abrogated, especially in the complete absence of TREM2, but even in the mice that only expressed one copy, that was true. And um, this is data from uh, Yaming Wang and Marco's lab, who found basically the same finding in a different APP, well, actually in the same APP PS1 mice I just showed you, um, where there's a complete absence of TREM2. There's strongly decreased microgliosis. So there, early on, there were several papers that showed the same kind of change, where basically in, with less TREM2 or no TREM2, microglia simply were not responding very well to the amyloid deposition. Subsequent work by Waji Zhu has found if you activate TREM2, you get the opposite response. You get more microglial activation. So if you look around the amyloid deposition that occurs in the absence of TREM2, one of the things, when we look more carefully, though, that is quite interesting is while A-beta deposition total amounts really weren't a whole lot different, there was, there was quite a striking change in the plaques themselves. They actually were much more spicular and wispy. Um, and so that was interesting. I mean, why, I mean, you could see this by eye just at low power under the microscope. Very striking change. And so um, once we saw that, we said, well, we had actually seen this kind of change in other experiments we'd done over the years where we altered APOE. If you knock down APOE levels, you start also getting this more, especially knocking it out, you'll start only getting these wispy plaques. 
And so we said, oh, well, maybe the damage around the plaques is altered by the, this different structure of the A-beta peptide. So what you see is if you look at dystrophic neurites stained with different markers like LAMP1 or reticulon 3 or BASE1, you can see that there's about twice as many dystrophic neurites around the amyloid plaques in the absence of TREM2. So that was interesting and suggested Trimi Grutzender's lab has a very similar finding. And it suggested that perhaps <clears throat> somehow the microglia not becoming act, more activated um, was leading perhaps to this altered A-beta structure that's more toxic, or perhaps the microglia, when they don't get activated, aren't producing the appropriate cytokines and other elements that, that then leads to more damage. So um, that's, I think that's interesting. So the issue, though, is one of the things that, of course, uh, the whole field has been doing for many years is they've been studying a lot of these protein aggregates, whether it's A-beta or tau, in isolation. And we know, in, at least in Alzheimer's disease, somehow A-beta is driving further progression of tau pathology in some way that we don't understand. So I thought, well, okay, if TREM2 is involved in the damage, local damage around plaques, but we couldn't really study tau in that model, Maybe we could study tau by introducing it. So as I said earlier, we know in the human disease that the tau pathology somehow, some way spreads from the medial temporal lobe into other brain regions. And one of the ways that has recently been published that one can try to model this tau seeding and spreading is something that Virginia Lee came up with where she was able to isolate AD tau from AD brains inject it into normal mice and find that that would induce the mouse tau to form neurofibrillary tangle-like structures. But if she did that in the presence of amyloid deposition, then what happened is the AD tau actually seeded very uh, paired helical filaments and abnormal phosphorylated tau in dystrophic neurites so that the plaques actually became, started to look at much more like neuritic plaques in the human brain. So, and this is a picture from one of her papers showing that when you see this AD tau, you get this beautiful tau dystrophic neurites, um, tau positive dystrophic neurites like you do in Alzheimer's disease. So, <clears throat> so the thinking at that time and we were, were, was that TREM2 somehow influences A-beta structure by affecting A-beta phagocytosis, and this would influence A-beta toxicity. However, in Alzheimer's disease, as I just said, it's the accumulation of aggregated hyperphosphorylated tau in dystrophic neurites, neuropil threads, and NFTs that is much better correlated with increasing neurodegeneration. So, and there's obviously, as I said, a lot of evidence that A-beta somehow drives tauopathy, but how it does this isn't known. So um, we hypothesize that a TREM2-mediated effect via microglia on this A-beta damage to neurites might drive a beta-mediated progression of AD pathology, or tau pathology. So the experiment that we did uh, was carried out by um, Cheryl Lyons, a, then a grad student in my lab, along with Maud Grattuzzi and Jason Ulrich. So the I, experimental paradigm is we took APPPS1 mice, crossed them to TREM2 knockout mice. We also crossed them to R47H human back transgenic mice. And then we waited till they already had a beta deposition, then injected these tau seeds, and waited three months to see what happened. So first, you can show using an antibody to hyperphosphorylated tau that in, the, in, these, in this A-beta depositing model, you see very, very little 
abnormal p tau around plaques under basal conditions. But when you seed, you see this very large increase in this p tau positive dystrophic neurites. And um, you could see by doing ultrastructure, which I don't, we didn't show here, that this really is paired helical filament-like tau that's present when you seed the brain in this way. So the, the initial result when we first looked under the microscope was very striking. So if you look, you can see this, this is staining with ATA to hyperphosphorylated, or a P-tau antibody. And you can see that in these APP mice, there's a lot of this P-tau staining around plaques, both ipsilateral to injection, and somehow it spreads contralaterally to connected, synaptically connected areas. But in the absence of TREM2, there's a very large increase in both the seeding as well as the spreading of tau that occurs after you do this. And um, this is just a higher power picture of this increase in P-tau seeding that occurs around the plaques and as well as in the spreading. You can see it's a, very, it's a pretty strong effect. This is in the absence of TREM2 completely. But obviously we wanted to understand if this was relevant for the human condition where there's not an absence of TREM2, but there's an, a mutation in TREM2. So we did the same experiment where we crossed the APP mice to either the human TREM2 comment variant back transgenics or to the TREM2R47H uh, uh, back transgenics. And this is all in the absence of mouse TREM2. So what you can see again is there's a pretty strong increase in tau seeding as well as it wasn't significant spreading, but it looked like it would trend that way if we did some more animals. So even, even just having a hypofunctional copy of, or version of TREM2 causes this phenomenon. And for those of you who are aficionados of looking at dystrophic neurites, what's interesting is that a lot of the dystrophic neurites around amyloid plaques, at least in these animals, um, do not contain this abnormally seeded tau. A subfraction does. So you can see that if you stain these dystrophic neurites, in this case with an antibody to base 1, somehow base 1 tends to build up in dystrophic neurites that Bob Vassar has shown. You can see that uh, it, the amount of these dystrophic neurites strongly correlates with the amount of abnormal p-tau, but it's, they're not completely overlapping. So then a final question we asked was, okay, well, if we see this in the animal brain, do you see this kind of phenomenon in the human brain? So we, we obtained a number of cases, mostly from our WashU uh, ADRC, as well as from the University of Pennsylvania, of people that died with Alzheimer's disease that either had the common variant of TREM2 or they had the R47H or R62H mutation. And when we look around amyloid plaques in those brains, we could find that when we matched the cases to each other, there was a pretty significant increase in AT8 or P-tau-positive dystrophic neurites with this TREM2 mutation. Um, we also, we didn't find, however, when we took the brain tissue from these same regions and measured biochemically how much insoluble tau there was, there really wasn't a significant difference. So I don't, I don't know if that's because it, this effect is only in dystrophic neurites or we just didn't look at the right areas or, or whatever. So I think this would argue that TREM2 activation appears to limit A-beta-induced local damage as well as A-beta-induced tau seeding and spreading. Um, so that would be this phase of this disease. So when amyloid is building up in the brain, when there's not so much of a buildup of tau yet, that would suggest that activation of TREM2 
in microglia in the brain might be protective. But there's different phases of this disease. So one of the other questions is, what's the role of TREM2? And then one of, again, I'll talk more about APOE in relation to this. What is the role of those two molecules in microglia in the tau phase of AD progression? So, for example, we know that once tau starts accumulating, you get a lot of neurodegeneration, a lot of neuronal loss, a lot of synaptic loss. So one of the ways that we began to address this was, at least experimentally in animals, was to use a model that develops tauopathy. So most of the work we've done with tau models has been with the P3ONS mice that Virginia Lee had developed. They overexpress a mutant form of tau that causes a rare form of frontotemporal dementia. Um, and these mice overexpress human tau about five-fold, and they overexpress a, a four-repeat tau with a mutation. What's nice about the model is that they start developing tau deposition histologically about five months of age or so, and then as it progresses along in different brain regions, the brain starts to show what you'd see, let's say, in the Alzheimer brain where tau is depositing. You see neuronal loss, you see brain atrophy, you see inflammation. So you, you can really look at some of the changes that are somewhat analogous to what you see in a tauopathy brain, whether it's FTD or, or AD. So one of the things that we've done is to ask the question, what's the role of TREM2 when tau is starting to drive somehow neurodegeneration? And there we see an opposite result of what we see that TREM2 might be doing during the amyloid phase of disease. So this shows these p S mice in the presence of normal mouse TREM2. So you can see there's enlargement of the ventricle, shrinkage of the hippocampus, entorhinal cortex, and piriform cortex. Those are areas of the brain that have tau buildup. But in the absence of TREM2, there's less injury to the brain. So I don't, you know, this is a different form of tau that occurs in Alzheimer's disease, but if all else was equal, you'd say that TREM2, if this translated to other scenarios, that activation of microglia in the amyloid phase might be a protective thing, but once you start getting this kind of pathology, it might be a bad thing. Um, or knocking it out might be a good thing. So what, what, why is it that APOE might, in addition to its role in, uh, in amyloid deposition, why might it be interesting to look at its potential role also in microglial activation and injury? So one of the experiments that was published by Oleg Butovsky's lab over the la about two years ago, what they did was they weren't looking at models of AD pathology. They were just looking at models where there was brain injury. So one of the experiments they did, and this is one of many in this paper, um, they took, a, they just cut the facial nerve. And you know after you do that, about seven days later, you can see death of most of the motor neurons that innervate the facial muscles. And that's shown here. So one of the experiments they did, based on other uh, network analysis they were doing, is that APOE, they found, was strongly upregulated in microglia along with a host of other genes, and it appeared to be kind of a, net, uh, a hub of a network. So in this experiment, they knocked out APOE only in microglia, and then they cut the facial nerve. And there's a pretty striking protection of the, of the motor neurons. So they, don't know the they didn't know the mechanism of how it was doing that, but it suggested APOE made by microglia somehow is contributing to neuronal injury in this uh, axonomy model. Uh, despite the fact that a lot of people had studied the role of APOE in amyloid deposition, there really wasn't, weren't experiments that had been done to try to study the role of APOE in 
tauopathy, obviously the other major proteinopathy in, in AD. So um, I'll, tell, I'll briefly go through the results that we published to get to the, the last story I wanted to tell you about that's related to this. So um, this work was done by many people, but Young Shi was the driver who's a very talented graduate student. So we did a very simple experiment. We, we took these P3NS mice that I told you get tauopathy and neurodegeneration, and we crossed them to human APOE knock-in mice. So uh, these are tau, tau E2, tau E3, tau E4 mice. Or we crossed the tau mice to APOE knockout mice. And we simply asked first, what does that do to the neurodegeneration and the brain atrophy that you get in this model? So what you can see is that in the presence of tau, p 3 tau and E4 by nine and a half months of age, there's massive atrophy of the hippocampus, entorhinal cortex, piriform cortex, and amygdala. And there's concomitant uh, enlargement of the ventricular system with the atrophy. What you can see is that with, in the presence of E2 and E3, there's still some damage, although it's, it's significantly less than in the presence of E4. But to me, the most striking finding was that when we crossed the model to, in, to APOE knockout mice, there was virtually no injury. Um, and that's despite the fact that tau still accumulated in these brains. So one of the things, we, this is just to show you if you count neurons or neuronal thickness of the CA1 layer as one example, there's a loss of, pretty strong loss of neuronal cell bodies in CA1, especially in the E4 mice, and there was no significant loss in the APOE, in the TAUI knockout mice. So, um, well, there's simply these, we, the tau mice that are APOE knockout have no APOE mouse or human, and these mice that uh, are ones that express human APOE. If we, lo- if we just look at p 3 s mice that express mouse APOE, you get pretty similar damages in the E4 mice, not quite as much. So one of the things we looked at in collaboration at that time with Oleg's lab is we looked at a number of genes that are either selectively expressed in microglia or, or, uh, or, over, or highly expressed by microglia in other cells. And um, if you look at this cluster map of about 600 genes at, at the RNA level that are expressed in these tau E4 mice, tau E3 mice, or tau E knockout mice, you can see this cluster of increased expression of so-called, and these are a lot of genes that have been described recently in different papers as disease-associated microglial-type genes or uh, microglial neurodegenerative type genes. Um, and there's, this is mu- it was much higher in the tau E4 mice, somewhat less in the tau E3 mice, and mostly abrogated in the absence of APOE. And you can see that there's much less expression of so-called homeostatic microglial genes in the tau E4 mice and a relative preservation of these more homeostatic cluster of genes. So if you look at what these cluster 1 genes are, you can see that they're made up of things like COMP-C3, TREM2, uh, C4A, so things that are associated with more inflammatory phenotype. Whereas if you look at the cluster 2 genes, the more homeostatic type genes, they're things that affect uh, lipid, uh, uh, lipid metabolism like LDL receptor, SREBP2. And if you look at staining for, with a, a marker that stains activated microglia, you can see this really strong morphological effect in the E4, more than E3, more than E2. And again, most of this is blocked in the absence of APOE. 
We also looked in collaboration with Shane Littlehouse, uh, Ben and Ben Barris's lab, on the effect of in these tau formice on different um, astrocyte activation type genes. And you can see in the tau formice, there's a strong increase in these type of genes, and that's mostly blocked in the absence of APOE. And this is just staining for GFAP, showing a similar morphological, more activation in the E4 mice than the other animals, and mostly blocked in the absence of APOE. So one of the things we wanted to also do is to determine whether this effect was all from APOE that we could mimic in brain cells and not from some effect of the vasculature or some systemic effect. And so we, uh, Young designed these experiments where she took um, neurons that overexpressed tau and plated them on top of a mixed glial feeder la uh, layer. And then the mixed glia, which was made up of about 85% astrocytes, 15% 15, uh, 15% microglia, either were from APOE knockout mice, APOE 2, 3, or 4 mice. And so uh, what this shows is that in the presence of E4 over a few weeks being secreted by the glia, um, that resulted in much more neurodegeneration, at least in the cultured neurons, than in the absence of APOE, the cells looked really healthy after this period of time. So that doesn't prove that it's glial APOE that's doing this in vivo, but I think it strongly argues that that is probably somehow causing the effect. Now, what APOE is doing to cause that is another issue we don't understand yet. And one of the other things we wanted to do was say, all right, well, is there any evidence in humans... In, with primary tauopathy that APOE is a risk factor. And so there was really not too much published about this, so we collaborated with Bill Seeley's lab at UCSF where the, he had collected and examined about 79 different brains of people who had died with a primary tauopathy, either PSP, CBD, or PICS, uh, PICS disease. And what he, he nor, uh, blindly, someone in his group, looked at each case, quantified in multiple brain regions the amount of tau pathology, and then asked for a certain amount of tau pathology how much damage there was to neurons. And what he found is in the presence of E4, there was significantly more damage to neurons in areas where there was tau. So it's, it, it doesn't prove that the findings we had in these mice are also seen in humans, but it, it suggested that possibility. We've also seen in humans with Alzheimer's disease from ADNI and, the, and also our ADRC, if we took people in the very mild stage of disease, all of whom had amyloid deposition, and then asked, is the progression of disease faster in the presence of E4 or E3? It was significantly faster with E4. And since they were normalized for amyloid deposition, it suggested the possibility that maybe something similar was occur is occurring in human Alzheimer's disease. So, so one of the things that several groups have seen recently is if you do single-cell RNA sequencing from the brain of, uh, of animals or humans, that if you look at baseline, this is from data from a wild-type mouse looking at the expression at the RNA level of APOE. And in a wild-type mouse, there's about a hundredfold more expression of APOE in astrocytes than the other cell types, such as microglia shown here. But in the presence of tauopathy, where there's tau-mediated damage in some way, you can see that the microglial APOE expression, this is a log scale, increases about 100-fold. So it's one of the most highly upregulated genes in activated microglia. How about neurons? Neurons, we don't see any appreciable expression of APOE mRNA. And that's also true in humans as well. At the mRNA level, when you look at this, when we do, we've done this in human brain. We see very little. 
Now, protein, you can sometimes see protein, but not the mRNA. Um, so um, the last story I'll tell you about is a paper that's about to come out in the next few weeks where we looked at the function of microglia themselves in this injury as well as the effect of APO, comparing the effect of APOE uh, versus microglia. And so um, one of the ways we wanted to see what microglia do in the, pre- in the presence of tauopathy was to eliminate them. And you've probably read recent studies where using a CSF1 inhibitor, so CSF1 is critical for microglial survival, and if you give an inhibitor to, to this agent, a small molecule, in this case from the company Plexicon, we figured out different doses to give in food that would virtually completely eliminate IBA1-positive microglia from the mouse brain. So once we found this dose, um, we did similar experiments to, that others have done in amyloid models where they have found that if you eliminate microglia after amyloid deposition, there's no effect on amyloid deposition, but if you eliminate microglia before amyloid deposition that actually decreases amyloid deposition in the, in the parenchyma. But this, in those models, there's really not, as, as you've heard, don't have a whole lot of uh, brain injury in those models. So th- we did this experiment in uh, mice that um, are tau APOE4 positive, where we know we'd get a lot of neurodegeneration. And we started giving this drug to mice at six months of age, just when tau pathology had started, but there wasn't a whole lot of neurodegeneration. And then we carried the experiment out till th- for three and a half more months till nine and a half months of age. So this is what I showed you earlier. We repeated, we got the same result. If you look at these tau E4 mice, nine and a half months of age, tons of hippocampal atrophy, tons of entorhinal cortex atrophy, enlargement of the ventricular system. So then we did, so then we looked at the same mice that had been given this CSF1 inhibitor. And there's basically no brain injury that we can detect at this level. So if we look at neurons, we look at brain volumes, looks like the brain is undamaged. So I thought this was a pretty amazing result. Um, And in fact, this is a pretty similar result to just crossing these mice to APOE knockout mice, and we repeated that experiment, we got the same result. There's, there's a little bit more injury in these, but almost no injury. And then um, we also tr- treated the TAUI knockout mice with the drug, and it was hard to get a whole lot more protection because they were mostly protected already. That's what <laughs> we, we did so many mice, we didn't really have a chance to also put them through behavioral assays. The only thing I would say is that we did do one assay we didn't put in here where we did nesting behavior, and definitely they're better if they were treated with the drug than not, but, but we, did, we need to do other cognitive testing. And this is just quantification of all of that data. So, um, so we also, of course, we wanted to look at the microglia when we eliminated them, hopefully, or not, and so this is a picture of IBA1 staining in just E4 mice that don't get any damage, and we give the Plexicon drug, and the microglia are mostly eliminated. This is the tau E4 mice. You can see activation of the microglia by staining, and again, it's mostly eliminated with the Plexicon drug. Um, It is interesting, though, in the tau E knockout mice, which, again, have a lot of protection, um, when we give this drug, there actually isn't as good of elimination of the microglia, and it might be APOE is somehow regulating the CSF1 receptor so that they don't respond quite as much. So one of the things we did find is that in some of the tau E4 mice that were treated with the Plexicon drug, 
there were still a few remaining activated microglia in some animals more than others, and that if there was, that tended to correlate with smaller brain volumes in those few mice. And if you, if you look at, um, uh, at these, uh, all the different mice we studied and you correlate how much activated microglia there are by CD68 staining, the amount of activated microglia correlates with brain volume. So if there's more activation, smaller brains. And that's looking at all of the mice together. The other thing is, surprisingly, we didn't really see an effect of when we knocked out the microglia in the E4 mice on astrocytes. There was still astrocyte activation that was occurring. And I don't really understand why that would be, but, um, but maybe the astrocytes themselves are responding somehow to the tau accumulation, but they need the microglia to somehow be the effector of the damage. So these are just different patterns of abnormal tau staining that occurs in this tau E4 model. So you can see there's even, uh, th that even though we, the drug didn't significantly decrease the amount of abnormal phosphotau staining in the brain, there was a trend that the treated mice or the tau knockout mice had somewhat less of this staining. But it, in particular, it affected these patterns of staining. So the pattern, this type 1 pattern, is generally associated with less neurodegeneration. And you can see that the animals that are treated with a plexicon drug that are tau e 4 have mostly this pattern that's associated with less injury. And that's also true in the absence of APOE. They tend to have more of this pattern that's associated with less injury. So the big effect is not so much on tau accumulation. It's more on the damage. Um, and this is actually biochemically measuring different forms of tau. And if you focus on the right panel, the formic acid fraction, the amount of phosphotau and total tau in the, in the insoluble fraction of the brain really wasn't affected by the drug. There was some decrease in phosphotau in the detergent-soluble fraction, but that's not where most of the insoluble tau is accumulating. Maybe somehow the microglia affecting phosphorylation of tau is a signaling effect. And then finally, we looked at APOE. So... Um, in the presence of the Plexicon drug, surprisingly, even though the microglia were eliminated mostly, there was actually an increase in APOE protein. So we thought maybe this is because the astrocytes are activated. Um, and in fact, if you do double labeling, if you focus on these panels here, you can see that there definitely is a lot of a APOE being expressed by the GFAP positive cells. Um, but surprisingly, in some of the tau e 4 mice treated with the drug, not all of them, we do start to see some APOE staining in neurons that have phosphotau in them. And I would suspect that this is due to accumulation of the protein, not due to expression there, but we'd have to do further experiments to prove that. Okay, so to summarize the talk, I think APOE clearly plays a role in A beta aggregation, E4 greater than 3, greater than 2, and this is likely an important reason why APOE is a risk factor for AD. But following A beta deposition, microglia in a TREM2 dependent way compact somehow A beta deposits and limit local toxicity as well as tau seeding and spreading. So APOE, especially E4, drives this tau mediated neurodegeneration process, at least in animals. And microglia appear to be critical for the tau-mediated neurodegeneration, and both APOE and TREM2 appear to be key players in this pathway. And overall, in regard to therapeutic targeting, it would seem that further studies should be done to decrease the levels of APOE in the brain, which could be a potential therapeutic target for both the A-beta and the tau phases of a disease like AD.
Um, and this is sort of a diagram of what I just said. And I want to uh, thank the many people involved in these studies. I mentioned most of them along the way. So why don't, I'll stop and tap. Hopefully there will be time for some questions. So thanks.